a real family, which everyone deserves, and you deserve. We don't talk about our pasts. We don't have pasts. Our lives started when we met Charlie. You look like a Marcy May. Marcy was my grandmother's name. The imitation of Christ. <laughs> Solid silver. And downcast eyes. <laughs> I didn't want virtue or lecture. <laughs> Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures in life bother you? No. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. And we're back. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? Happy almost New Year. Happy almost New Year. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I um, apologize to you and to our audience for the fact this episode is a little bit late. Um, I had trouble getting hold of one of the films and then oh. finally managed it last, mo- last moment. But we've decided to release it before the end of the year just so, I don't know, just so that we finish something in, two- yeah. in 2020 and we can feel good about it. Absolutely. It's going to be satisfying to have like our season finale for Cults on Film mm-hmm. on the last day of the year. That's perfect. Suits me perfectly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, I also had trouble finding this film. It's Holy Smoke that you mm-hmm. couldn't locate. Yeah. I, ha- I had to do some digging around. In the end, I found it like secondhand from this guy online. Um, <laughs> it's just ages ago. So whoever is like, in charge of distributing this film please can you like put it on a you know streaming channel or something like can someone make it available for people to watch i mean i do love i actually quite love it when a film isn't widely available to watch because it means you know it just mm. kind of reminds us that the internet is like an iceberg uh, like information <laughs> is an iceberg and like the internet is the tip and there's just so much more out there that is true. Um, and I quite enjoy being reminded of that. I like I like the idea that a film is, is rare or like, you know, hard to find. Yeah, that is true. It just means that like, I don't know, it just means that we don't weary of cinema if things, you know, come and go. They're not always, you can't just always have them. Um, yeah, we don't take them as for granted as much. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that is true. It kind of brought me back to the days when like, you know, I would... Uh, hope to find something in the video store you know <laughs> like, yeah I remember trying to find things and going back like every day to see if the thing that I wanted was back in the video store yeah um, exactly or like you know just trying or like going through the radio times every week and circling yeah. the films that were going to be on and then taping them, and watching them. <laughs> I don't know it's very nostalgic but I think it's very I think that's a nice thing about about film you know that you can forget and then remember yeah oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah those definitely were the golden years for me as well like just appreciating the thing I was was watching because I had to like work to get it yeah 
Um, that is true. It makes it sweeter for sure. Exactly. Um, and yeah, since we're finishing this series, uh, just to let our listeners know that we will return to you to get your opinions about which topic you want for our next one. Mm-hmm. So be sure to follow us on Projections Pod on Twitter because that's where we're going to run the poll. Yeah. Oh, we're <laughs> it this time. Oh, gosh. I feel like there's so many things that you suggested in our emails last time that I want to, like, test out and bring back. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think I think that's definitely bringing the double back because that one did yeah. well. And I'm quite interested in doing that one. Um, yeah, me too. There were a couple more that I feel like we kind of, st- like, started to dream up during these conversations or yeah. during our pre-conversations which we should really just record because sometimes I know like sometimes we say something really good and then the record button happens comes on and I for one lose all like charm and intelligence nonsense Sarah <laughs> especially in this uh case in point today like just five minutes ago we were recording and I wish I had hit record because you were coming out with the best takes and I was like kicking myself that I wasn't capturing it I honestly it I have not so I have not not had one intelligent thought like for the last two weeks You're, I think you, just having a having a conversation with you brings it out of me like I've just been in a like coma <laughs> so it's nice to speak to you and be able to form those thoughts finally oh my god I rely on you for that so that, I'm, I'm glad it's working both ways I'm glad it's working both ways um yeah definitely and you know what I was also thinking would be fun to put in a poll I mean maybe if not next you know this next round but maybe down the line is I keep thinking of it would be funny to have like problematic faves Ah, oh my god that's a really good idea yeah let's yeah let's think about that because I think that could be really fun yeah maybe if not in an entire series like as like yeah yeah, maybe just a one-off or maybe two episodes or something like mm. that. Like just something small, re- but things that repeat that we do every now and then. Because I feel oh, like I would yeah. need to like a recurring every time we did one. Um, yeah, like you know, and we would have to like. I feel like if we did them all in one series, then like we might get cancelled. <laughs> Like, if someone just looked at our lineup and didn't read into it, then that is so true. Yeah, it might be really we could some bad things could happen to us. Like I'm a bit nervous after 2020. I know. Although you did make the point that you know, I know it has mm-hmm. been obviously terrible things have happened this year. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I feel like if if tracking my period has taught me anything, it's just <laughs> that like actually everything happens the same over and over and over again. And like, I don't know, I was saying that I felt a bit lonely and miserable this Christmas. But actually, I feel like that every Christmas. It's just a reoccurring theme of the kind of weird liminal space in between like the end of work and the beginning of next year. Mm. So I don't know. You're right. Like in a way, just having the pandemic occur kind of just makes us see that that is the case. Like Mm. it is just something that is... You know, of course, we'll appreciate things when everything opens up and we'll be grateful, but it's it's kind of hard to, I mean, at least for me, and I can kind of relate to what you say as well. It's, it's hard for me to like lose myself in social moments. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I love being like, I'm very solitary. So in a way, the pandemic just kind of suits my lifestyle because yeah. it turned out like, you know, I was, I'd been living in quarantine for a very long time. <laughs> 
So, you know, it's just, um, I mean, I exaggerate, but do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, so I, I agree. Like, I, it makes me think that if everything opened up next year, um, I'd probably still feel a little bit of melancholy around Christmas anyway. Yeah, you know? and I think it will change the things that we feel sad about. I think it just exacerbates them. And then obviously, you know, some people have dealt with actual real tragedy and death and illness, which yeah. is obviously horrendous as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm glad that I'm I'm looking forward to the new year. Not not, but I'm not going to say like, oh, fuck off, 2020 or anything like that because, you know, I don't know. There have <laughs> we've learned a lot this year, I think. Um, but yeah. I am excited that it will be the first of January, and there's like all of that wide, vast expanse of a new year coming. Yeah, it'll be nice. That's always exciting. I always appreciate a fresh start. Although, you know, I was reading on Reddit, somebody said um, that 2021 just sounds phonetically like the year 2020 has won, like we <laughs> lost 2021 over us. Um, but yeah, so now we're, we, we are finally coming to um, this topic of deprogramming, mm-hmm. which hopefully is, you know, the natural uh, way for anyone going through the process of literally or figuratively experiencing a cult. Uh, hopefully you arrive at a place where, you know, your, your, your mind can be challenged and you can cr- self-criticize and ask yourself those like important questions mm-hmm. and make sure that you have autonomy. So deprogramming for me stands for that really. Yeah, it's um, it's an it's a really interesting subject, and um, I think that we've got two films that deal with this the problem very differently. <laughs> um, we are going to talk about uh, Jane Campion's Holy Smoke from nineteen ninety nine, and Mary Harron's Charlie Says from twenty eighteen. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. which is oh, two female directors in this episode. Two female directors. Yay, yeah. Go yeah um Um, you said you'd never seen holy smoke before never seen holy smoke i actually hadn't watched um charlie says all the way through either Mm -hmm. um i started watching it and i feel like i just couldn't take matt smith seriously as charlie manson (laughs) um so i stopped watching it i was like i was just like this is all just i mean to americans they won't know that but it's like i'm just this is all british tv stars this is so weird like you know like uh, hannah from skins and um doctor who (laughs) yeah um but i love mary harren and um we actually one of our listeners sent us a really interesting article about what is her name the um, mary harren's co-writer guinevere turner i wanted to say guinevere beck but i wouldn't but that's the character from you Oh yeah! Oh god, it's true. Yeah, and I think I've really missed you this Christmas because it's Me last, too. last few Christmases we had you to watch. And now we don't have a new series, so um, so it's just like clearly heavy on my mind. Um, but one of our listeners sent us a really interesting article about how Guinevere Turner actually grew up in a cult because she's actually kind of she pops up in a lot of interesting stuff. Guinevere Turner, she's in mm-hmm. the Watermelon Woman, which is oh. a film that really was talked about a lot this year. It was on BFI. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of the kind of elevation of black filmmakers, yeah. um, and it's and she's the like love interest in that. And apparently, she's made like she's kind of quite big in like queer cinema. She's made a couple of films of her own, and then she's also she wrote American Psycho with Mary Harron. Um, oh, wow. And she also plays the character in American Psycho that he that is like one of the girls in the threesome. 
Um, really? It's like the girl that is like, did you go to Vassar or like whatever she says? I can't remember which um, which university. Oh my like, God, you're right. Yeah, she's that woman. Really gorgeous. She's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm really interested in her as just a, as like a film person, like a kind of under the radar oh. film, like Hollywood person, because yes. she's actually done loads of disparate, really interesting things. But because she's a screenwriter, we don't like, she's like primarily a screenwriter. We don't really hear about her. That's right. Um, but yeah. I find her super interesting. Anyway, I'm totally diverging from the oh, no. topic, but that's so interesting. Yeah, she's a nice like it's nice to focus on one of her films and know that it's so kind of closely connected to her childhood. <laughs> yeah. So she actually she and Mary Heron adapted Brett Easton Ellis's novel. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That is so interesting because I recently started listening to his podcast. Oh my god, really? Oh god, it is. It's so offensive. (laughs) It's so weird. Like it's literally like um, because during the summer, uh, I I took up like um, sort of listening to books I had read before. And I'd I'd listen to the whole audiobook of American Psycho, but I would do it like walking around my neighborhood during like when the lockdown was in place and there was nobody out. It was just me walking with my earphones and listening to American Psycho. And <laughs> it was just the weirdest experience. But then I realized that Brett Ellis Brett Easton Ellis talks like Patrick Patrick Bateman. Like that is his actual voice. Mm-hmm. Because his podcast episodes, it's just him remembering his childhood, but like 99% of the material he gives is what people were wearing. <laughs> oh, really? That's so interesting. Yeah, but it's like, it's too much. Like it's not, it's, it's not interesting in the way that American Psycho is. It's just, it just becomes banal after a while. And he, it's crazy the memory he has. He even remembers the like color of shoelaces and like, the, the you know which direction the stripes went on people's shirts like it was just just too much information wow. um so you're completely right he kind of does do that I, he talks like patrick bateman yeah he does <laughs> oh god <laughs> but yeah i mean i only i only tuned in because the episode was labeled um an interview he'd had with this director eugene kotliorenko mm-hmm. the guy who who directed spree Oh, I really is that on that is that on Netflix? Yeah, I saw it was coming. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming tomorrow, New uh, Year's Eve. Yay! Okay, well, I'm definitely going to watch it because you spoke so highly of it. Yeah, I love that movie. It's like my fourth favorite movie of the year. <laughs> like, I absolutely adore it. And uh, anyway, so I tuned in to listen to that interview with Eugene, but like an hour in, and he's still talking about his friends in like. Inglewood or something and I'm thinking hello what about Eugene (laughs) when is he coming on he's not a good interviewer (laughs) like (laughs) like I think I listened to one he did with Karen Kasama oh and maybe and he just like I I just turned it off because it was just Brett Asnellis speaking and Karen Kasama not really oh no Um, I think it was Karen Kasama I can't quite remember it was a few years ago but he does he interviews really interesting people but then he's just so like off-putting but he's very verbose. He's really, yeah, he's, I don't know, he's just, uh, he's just kind of a dick, I guess. It's like how I kind of think of him. Um, yeah, very strange manner. Um, but so deprogramming. Deprogramming. Um, I mean, I don't, I was saying to you before we started recording that I don't feel I have any kind of substantial theoretical contributions for this 
episode other than maybe the long-standing debate in psychoanalysis about when you know it's time to quit analysis like mm-hmm. when you, when when you decide with your practitioner that it's time to like end your sessions and then you just bring everything to a close and there was a paper by freud um analysis terminable interminable um and he sort of like you know brings out these ideas and I guess, for the benefit of the public discourse. And I was kind of thinking, like trying to link that a little bit with maybe the experience of people getting caught up in cults or feeling compelled to join a cult or being duped or whatever the circumstances may be. And how, for whatever reason, they've ended up in this traumatic situation, but maybe on some level they've needed to um, experience something like work through something that has a link to their past mm. and the deprogramming phase I think can only occur when the subject <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> when the when the subject feels like they've arrived in a place where they've kind of achieved everything they want psychically and they're kind of ready to move on to a different phase because I think that I, I think it, if someone truly is wedded to the ideology that consumes them inside a cult, um, if they're kind of like in the throes of that, it's going to be next to impossible to try and convince them otherwise or have an, you know, stage an intervention or whatever it may be. If they're not ready, like they're because they may even exit the cult physically, but they'll go and find some other substitute for it. It has to I feel like it has to come from the subject and that deprogramming can really only work when the person is ready to kind of like shed those layers of, of, of discourse and narrative that kind of keeps them pris- a prisoner of their own mind or of this social, you know, communal experience. Yeah, it makes me think about how similar the kind of things we've been talking about this series, just how similar those experiences are to addiction yeah, um, of any kind and how like a lot of the things that we kind of have other names for are just addictions yeah. like in their own way. Like I've been thinking about like people leaving abusive relationships yeah. as well, like which we were kind of just talking about before the episode started. We were worrying about um, Margaret Qualley and her relationship mm. with Shia LaBeouf. Um, but yeah, just the, yeah, the impossibility of anyone doing it for you. Yeah. Just like it's, there's, I don't know, everyone just kind of has their time. Um, do you know much about deprogramming as a, as a concept? As, uh, yeah. I mean, all I know is that it has to do with, um, it, it, it's kind of almost like a behavior therapy where all your beliefs are challenged, mm-hmm. but in a very systematic way. And, I mean, I don't, I don't have that much info in terms of what exactly, what are the like the ideal circumstances where you can achieve a successful deprogramming. Um, I mean, I just because I come from that psychoanalytic background, I don't know whether I fully believe that you can one hundred percent deprogram because I feel like, I feel like in a way, in a funny way, deprogramming is just another. It's just another pitch to join a cult in a way, because um, I, I mean, I say this, you know, you know what I mean? Like, because it's it's just one other person coming to you and telling you, no, everything you believe is wrong and believe what I say. 
Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And um, I mean, there's actually a really good episode um, of um, Stuff You Should Know, the podcast, about deprogramming. Yeah. And it's kind of about depro- the a sort of deprogramming boom in America that kind of oh. followed, the, I suppose, that kind of followed the boom of cults. Yeah. Um, but around the same time as kind of satanic panic is taking over and all that kind of stuff, like people were really worried about cults and were hiring deprogrammers. But, you know, they, I don't know, like it's, it became like a, you know, a reasonable career path for people to become like cult deprogrammers. But people would also hire deprogrammers if they, if their children were doing something they didn't like. So there's like a really harrowing, awful story about some parents that hired a deprogrammer for their daughter who was in a lesbian relationship. Oh my god! Um, and the you know like ar- basically arranged for this girl to be like kidnapped and like practically tortured by these men, like oh in god. just because they didn't like the relationship that she was in or like the lifestyle that she had chosen. Um, so deprogramming can be like you know used for all sorts of nonsense things. Yeah, um, as we'll see in the in the the first. Yeah the first film that we're going to talk about oh my god yeah um, but it's it's interesting that they do in the in holy smoke they do choose and they get an american um, yeah because like that sort of that idea of like the fight between good and evil and like there only being two choices in life is quite an yeah. american one yeah um, that's very binary sort of like you know um and and also this this whole approach that you um, you know, the deprogrammer is this like uh, knight in shining armor coming mm-hmm. to save you. Yeah. Um, it's very presumptuous and very arrogant. And very patriarchal. Very <laughs> patriarchal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and as, as you say, like, it's, it's just, you know, if, if, if we um, put too much faith in the power of deprogramming, then that's, that's sort of a slippery slope because, it could be literally any controversial belief system can be viewed and perceived as dangerous. And we need to like, you know, it, it becomes, it, I guess what I, I don't like about the concept of deprogramming is the idea that there has been an, a decision made about the right and wrong moral path. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all just too complicated to be so certain about things like that, you know? Um, I can I can I can understand if someone is truly in like an abusive situation and they have Stockholm syndrome or something and people who care about them intervene. Um, I guess I guess just the idea that you replace one set of beliefs for another. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm a little bit like I feel a bit dubious about it. Yeah, I think like the idea that you you are worried about someone because they're putting their power in someone else. So yeah. you like cause them to submit their power to someone else like to admit to, to submit to someone else's teachings is mm. just like counterintuitive it doesn't yeah. make any sense yeah um, it goes back to what you said in a previous episode when you said you you know you you, you see red flags when someone says oh you need to open up yeah because it's just that that always presupposes open up to my you know my my ideology my worldview whatever yeah yeah I think um yeah there's something about the deprogrammer that is just like a deeply sus- like suspicious person <laughs> um yeah <laughs> well do you want to talk about holy smoke let's do it yeah okay so I am going to synopsize 
Riley's in quite a hurry about two minutes past seven so we'll see if that makes sense <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. While on a gap year, Ruth, a young Australian woman, has a spiritual awakening when she meets a guru named Baba. When her friend reports these goings on to her parents back in the suburbs of Sydney, they concoct a plan to lure Ruth back to Australia and submit her to the deprogramming methods of the famous exit counsellor, PJ Waters. Confronted by an intervention from her family, Ruth is convinced to spend three days with Waters in a remote cabin in the desert, but things descend into chaos. Mm, yeah. Um, directed by Jane Campion, uh, written by her and her sister Anna Campion. Yeah. Did they write um, a novel, or is, did they write the just the screenplay? It's just a screenplay. Oh, okay. Um, but Anna Campion, uh, I actually met her. <gasps> I yeah. If you, yeah, it's an amazing thing. Uh, back back in the day, back in the Halcyon days, when we used to have like in real life live in-person events at the, at the Freud Museum. Um, she she came along to a few of my courses. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So she lives it's in very London? Cool. I, I believe she sort of splits her time between London and New Zealand. So oh. big shouts to Anna Campion. She was very nice. I spoke to her a few times and she was lovely. Um, yeah, so really cool. And also the music in this film by Angelo Badalamenti, yeah. <laughs> the, the Ibiza DJ. Ibiza DJ. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Like I've, 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 I've discovered that Badalamenti scored so many films in the '90s. It's kind of incredible. I, in my mind, he was only just, you know, someone who worked with David Lynch. But no, he was a busy man. <laughs> well, so what, what did he else did he score in the series? Um, what was it? The Beach. Yeah, it was the beach. Well, I thought these films, those, I thought this really reminded me of the beach. Yeah, that's true. There must have been like a real social preoccupation with young people traveling. Wow. Um, yeah. In the 90s, like something, because it's like, it's a bit like, it's like pre the cultural appropriation disapproval. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like it just, I feel like so much so much of the 90s is about like backpackers gap years travelers like people seeking mystical experiences like I don't know but it's just like a real preoccupation that at this stage in 2020 is a little bit hard to grasp or understand why yeah oh my gosh I saw pre-9-11 you know like yeah that's so true yeah Um, it's a simpler more innocent time <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. Um yeah, I just I just hate that I was kind of too young at the time to really take advantage of it. Um or maybe even too sheltered at the time. Maybe that's more appropriate. But um but yeah, so this is a classic example of someone <laughs> a deprogrammer hired by a family to kind of intervene with their daughter. It's crazy. Like she, she, she's brought back and told that her dad's dying. That's a lie. It's all a pretext. But she doesn't, and then, even, she doesn't even come back for that. Like I, you know, her mother goes in and says like, you know, your dad's dying. And she's like, well, that's bad timing. That's true. I have to stay here. And then, um, <laughs> and then her mother like has a like hysterical asthma attack kind of. And that's the reason that she has to come back because she has to like escort, escort her mother on like a hospital bed on the plane. 
Oh my god, that gave me so much anxiety when she couldn't find her inhaler in her bag. I was like, oh my god, get- everything is on the ground. Like, is it- it's all getting muddy. Like, I was, just- I was getting so much. Like, oh, uh, just like really triggered me. But um, but you're right. Like, and and then when and then when she arrives, it was. It- I like the topography of it when it first started. Like the men and her family, like sort of cir- literally circling around her. Mm-hmm. And she's, she looks like she's kind of like this caged animal. It was really shocking. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all about, I don't know. I feel like this film is all about men. Yeah. Um, in a way, or like a women. I don't, I, I don't even feel like it's really about cults. Like I feel like it's, I just think it's something to do with like a woman trying to learn about men. Mm, okay. Um, and feeling, I don't know, just a sort of, a woman like kind of having to put herself out there in order to like having to put herself in danger in order to learn like how to deal with masculinity because she has this like father who's like totally uninterested in her and like got his secretary pregnant yeah um and then she's got this like there's a bit where she says like at least indians are like honest about their hatred of women that's right. Um, so and then so she's got this like guru who she wants to marry in like very specifically in like a in a symbolic ritual which isn't about sex or like isn't yeah. about real marriage. Um, yeah, she says he marries everyone. He marries everyone. Like and she just wants to be like in this she wants to be in this kind of different kind of marriage. I suppose like a marriage that mm-hmm. isn't based on like I don't know, the cult of love. <laughs> um yeah and uh and then you've got Harvey Keitel who is this like who is sort of this example of like old school masculinity like like you said knight in shining armor masculinity yeah um and yeah I mean I haven't really quite and then there's like these then there's like these these cut like these this brother and like his I don't know like these like Australian guys like and their kind of laddishness (laughs) um uh-huh. also there's like gay couple who I don't I don't know like there's just all these like versions of masculinity and it's just totally it's like really chaotic film yeah um, but I don't know I think like as we talk about it I'll kind of get to the bottom of what I think of it but what do because you I was just well because this is it because I was thinking like it's also interesting the name of the Sydney suburb where they are um Sans Souci because mm-hmm. in French that means without worry, like no worries. Oh, interesting. Which is kind of like you know a very Australian, I guess, turn of phrase, like no worries, whatever. But at the same time, um, it, I feel like top- topographically it's important because it's kind of situates the narrative that out there in like you know scary India, you're vulnerable and you've been manipulated and you know, harm has come to you. Mm-hmm. But here in our, you know, family uh, environment, you know, you, you have nothing to be worried about. We're just looking out for you. You know, we know what's best for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've arranged for this guy to come out. And the whole thing with him is just crazy because he's so unprofessional. Like um, he was supposed to, he was supposed to fly out with his wife or something. Um, and then, which is which is played by Pam Greer. I couldn't believe it. I was like, "What the hell? Like, how do you cast Cam- Pam Greer and she's only in like five minutes of your movie?" I know she's, it's so weird. Like the most she's fabulous Pam Greer ever. <laughs> I um, know. 
It's criminal, really criminal underuse of Pam Greer. Maybe she was um, in the script more and they cut it. I don't. I can't, that's the only thing I can imagine. Couldn't work it out. It was bizarre. Or maybe she just did it as a favor. You know, who knows? Yeah, she probably was friends with Harvey Keitel. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I would have thought. Um, and also, Harvey Keitel, of course, has worked with Jane Campion before. He yeah. was in the piano, wasn't he? He was. He was. Yeah. So I just think like, you know, topographically, it's interesting. It's sort of trying to set up this home environment as, as this like, you know, safe place where no, no harm can come to you. But of course, like when she's taken away to this weird shed out in the outback or something, um, it's just a free for all. It's it's totally bizarre. Like I was expecting um, serious debate. I, I wanted like a real intellectual uh, back and forth between mm-hmm. uh, Kate Winslet's character and Harvey Keitel. Keitel, sorry, I can't say his name. <laughs> but um, I wanted to see like just something, yeah, like a real sort of like picking apart of like what made you go there and like why do you think it's better and, you know, what are you looking for? And, and there was some of that, but it quickly just descended into um, – salaciousness or something um I don't know I I couldn't help but think that in the end he had been inducted into a cult like he was the one who was worshiping her and like following her around like a crazed maniac and trying to kidnap her and like trying to secure her for himself only Mm -hmm. and then he had those hallucinations out in the desert and everything I couldn't help but think that maybe he had just got carried away in the presence of unbridled femininity and yeah he I don't know yeah there is some I really I mean I do enjoy that storyline that she kind of like they both sort of just descend into madness but he's like very much sort of dragged like I don't know she very like this power dynamic kind of shifts um but doesn't yeah. shift in a very pro- like pleasing way because she doesn't seem to want to keep any power once she's got it yeah um so yeah like and he kind of but I don't know I think it's just about like again I'm like pretty I'm getting more attached to this cult of love idea yes um because I think that like that is I think that that's kind of what it is like in in my head at least and it's maybe because I've been thinking about this a lot Mm. recently but you know I think that women are like brought up all in this like like Western women especially um, are like brought up with this idea that love is like the most important thing, you know, that like romantic love is the most important thing and it affects like everything that we do Um, Mm -hmm. and like the misuse of that like education, like, you know, that it serves us badly and it can turn us into like, it can make us like uncertain and insecure and um, incomplete um, Mm. because we like can't, we can't do what we're told we're supposed to do, um, which is like inspire love and keep it. Um, Mm. And like, this is like actually kind of about a woman that's trying to escape a cult. Yeah. Um, and her family like drag her back and like put her in like a heteronormative situation that they like are more comfortable with. Wow. Like, Wait, so you're saying that when she went to India in a way that was her trying to deprogram herself of the of the kind of cult of insanity 
which is all this kind of, as you say, like very patriarchal, very heteronormative um, definition of love. Yeah. But then they just drag her back. Because like, you know, she says that she loves like this guru and that she wants yeah. to be married. But like, actually what you see is just her hanging out with a bunch of women. Yeah. Um, you know, she seems to have, she seems to have quite a lot of friends in this, yeah. in this cult. And, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't like, you know, lots of cults in India that, you know, white tourists fall, you know, that, that it does happen. Like there's mm. you know, plenty of like ashrams where they take away your passport and like, you know, um, it's, you know, it happens all over the world and the travelers are really susceptible to it. But no, like, I think there's something about the, the fact that marriage is mentioned Yes, and like her parent, that's the thing that seems to like to, like really set her parents off. The idea yeah. that she's going to get into this like this marriage that is nothing that is like not the kind of marriage that they've like trained her for. Yeah. And in a way, like you know, even though they don't hire this guy to like have sex with her, they kind of they do hire this guy to like reestablish this <laughs> like this relationship of like women listening to men. And wow then like I think what happens to them is sort of what happens to like to all women when they're kind of promised like that a relationship with men will like a man will be a certain way and it's actually just like two people in a folly adieu like mm. um and that you know about like that I don't know that you've you've got this kind of like power over someone and you don't really want it and then you give it back and you don't have it anymore and it's just like this kind of it's just this chaotic it's kind of like a first relationship Mm. what they have like it's just these two people being like super over dramatic because that's what they've learned about love yeah you know when you're like an, a teenager a teenager in a relationship that's what you do like you you like torture each other mm. um because that's kind of what you think you're supposed to do and then i think it's really important that at the end of the film she's emailing him and saying oh, yeah. like and she's like they're separated and they're both in kind of like calmer places and she's sort of saying, like, I'm still, I still love you. I don't know why from, from afar. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, that's kind of like what I think happens when you grow up and you um, you kind of, you detach yourself from this idea of education of love that you're given. You, you like, you think about it as this idealized thing still, but you're like what, old enough and wise enough to know to stay away from it. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like it's an imperfect analogy because there's a lot that no, film, but... no. Actually, you've really illuminated it for me because now it makes sense. The ending makes more sense to me now because, of course, she goes back to India. Yeah, she goes so, back to India with like an even more like with her mother, with her mother who's like also who she who like simultaneously has been deprogrammed from this cult by leaving this person that's unfaithful exactly exactly so she's been the one who deprogrammed her mom yes right and then they're living this lovely kind of actually quite quaint life in india working with animals yeah they're like yeah they've got this like kind of this yeah then like they're not in any kind of cult at the end they just kind of they like they they, you know they've kind of discovered that life is something other than like forming these like obscure family units with people that don't really care about you yeah exactly that makes so much sense Sarah because also um you know Harvey Keitel's character is shown at the end to be like very domesticated he's actually he's actually kind of come out of this weird lifestyle where he used to have an open marriage and he was very promiscuous or he had very mm. chaotic relationships and he was very unreliable. He was kind of an avatar of her dad. Yeah. And then 
he's the one now following this kind of strange experience with with her that he's gone you know back and and being faithful to his wife has twins has twin babies so he has a life that Ruth's father probably wanted for Ruth just to be like a housewife or something or just you know a, a woman in her place yeah. he he's the one wearing the babies you know <laughs> like and 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 Ruth and her mom they're they're they they can finally be in this place truly without worry not just nominally they're out in India doing their thing they're together and I just like the fact that also her mom's character did have asthma. Like she had that, she probably found the very oppressive where she lived and she couldn't really fully breathe. Yeah. And you know what I mean? So it makes sense. You've, you've really, you've really clarified this film for me. Well, I mean, I only really figured it out in the pre episode conversation with you. And we were talking about, um, <laughs> you know, like women, you know, women in abusive yeah. relationships and, and uh, like what I personally think gets them there, I don't think it's anything to do with your. I don't think it's anything to do with your upbringing or you know. I just think I think we're yeah. all, we're all taught that that's preferable to being yeah. alone. Um, but I'm also I'm I'm quite convinced that um, Jane Campion has that that this idea of like an alternative a society that is better for women because I think that she's fully she's fully formed that by Top of the Lake. Because yeah. Top of the Lake has a cult that is all women in it, yeah. and it's and it's all women. They all like live in these like like storage units, storage <laughs> units um, in the like out in the New Zealand wilderness, uh-huh. and they're all and like some of them are like recovering from like domestic violence, but mainly they're just recovering from like spending like forty years in like the dating scene. Like or, be, mm. or like they're just recovering from like marriage or from relationships, um, yeah. and like they're just and I don't know. So I think that this is kind of like a prep for that idea. Mm. Um, I think she's very into this idea of, um, yeah, like this this kind of alternative lifestyle where you don't have to be you don't have to be valued by your romantic life as a woman. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and kind of like showing the process of women finding their, you know, an empowerment that is meaningful for them. Mm-hmm. Not just like this kind of like scripted uh, idea of an, of empowerment, yeah. um, which, which we know can very easily get co-opted by neoliberalism, you know, like, oh, an empowered woman is a CEO, you know, yeah. like that's just nonsense. Whereas... Um, yeah, you're right. I, I can see. I can see that this could be really like a prototype for um, Top of the Lake. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's interesting. This does fit into the neoliberal, ne- like the kind of the series before. In a yes. Way, because I think a lot of the things that women are taught to want that also fits in with neoliberalism. You yeah. know, the idea that you should own a house and that you should like... I don't know and like someone was t- telling me really I mean I'm going completely off subject but my friend Rebecca I went for a walk with her today and she was saying uh-huh. that um that because economists don't value the work that women do it's basically mm. like invisible to a lot of female labor is like unpaid so it doesn't show up on economists radar and mm-hmm. then because of that like this having children has become has gone from being like a pretty much like a public service almost Mm. like something that we actually all need because we all need people to take care of us when we're old like we need people to keep the economy you know like it's like actually something that ever you know 
that there's yeah. like a good thing to do for everyone like it's turned from being like a public necessity into like a private luxury wow um anyway that's the completely that's not, not related to what deprogramming at all but I just I think this really gave me a lot of food for thought about that's something that I'd already been thinking about which was which is this cult that we're all like indoctrinated into as soon as we're yeah. born, practically um and it's no one's fault it's just like a self-sustaining cult yeah that's right because actually um the more I think about it the more as you're speaking I'm getting like flashes from the movie and I even remember when they all go out clubbing or something um you know there's this kind of extended sequence where Harvey Keitel just watches in a very pervy way I might add Mm -hmm. he's like watching uh, Ruth dance with another girl yes and there's like this kind of very sensual dancing. And at one point, the two women kiss. Mm-hmm. So that to me also kind of confirms what you're saying about Ruth desperate to kind of escape the cult of the sort of very textbook, very kind of mapped out world that her father probably wants her to have. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of her family by extension. And in a way that she her rebellious spirit is constantly like provoking that and constantly challenging that and therein like her fluid sexuality you know and that's exactly what he's mesmerized by the fact that she's able to transgress those boundaries and like kind of incite something in him Mm -hmm. um so I think you're right. And also just the whole session where he he has this, this really made me laugh, actually. You know, like when he arranges for the entire family to gather around in the house and watch these documentaries about cults. Oh, I really enjoyed that. There was some footage that I'd never seen before. <laughs> it was, like it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Just like the whole setup of it. Like, okay, everybody, let's gather around and watch this morbid footage together of like people killing themselves like en masse, you know? Mm-hmm. And and like the minute someone is like has to leave, like they press pause, you know? Like it's just it's it just it seems so ludicrous to me, but of course it makes sense that the person hired to be the interventionist or the deprogrammer will try and kind of like paint this picture of this kind of almost comical picture of what a cult has to look like necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so she has to be on the lookout for that specific danger therein, like making her not even recognize the cultish aspects of her family. Yes. Yeah. That's so true. It's really interesting. I think like, yeah. what happens to him, I think what happens to him when he puts on a dress is really fascinating as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe like a little bit heavy handed, but it is just really interesting how like in trying to like bring him round to like the idea of like an alternative kind of femininity, he actually actually brings him into like the stereotype of femininity. <laughs> yeah. So like immediately he puts on the dress and he's like, I think we should get married. <laughs> like Right. <laughs> <laughs> And like she's like trying oh to God. kind of like free him, but in the end she ends up just like bringing him into like the unfortunate situation that she's in. Um, yeah, you know, of like it just I don't know. It's really it's a really interesting thing. And I did think I was. Uh, you're right about the ending because I was like, why has he got that baby on his back? Like, why does he have to have these things? <laughs> but actually, it's totally you're, you know he's taken on this like like everyone's gender is kind of like you know softened for the better. 
yeah um, you know it's not he's yeah he's like happiest as like an artist and homemaker <laughs> yeah yeah he's a house husband looking after children which he he does seem to be a nurturing person maybe before it was just sort of misallocated in some way mm-hmm. like you know uh, or misused um but I think that yeah I think I, I think also just the reversal of positions happens across the film like when um that female um relative of Ruth I think is like her sister-in-law yes uh, when she drives out to meet you know Harvey Keitel and then she gives him a blowjob that was such like she's such a fascinating character yeah I actually really liked the bit where she kind of describes their sex life her and her husband's sex life and she's just like (laughs) I don't have sex with him I have sex with like Tom uh, Cruise and Brad Pitt and like she's like telling this like story of and then she says that he thinks I'm having an affair because of these letters and then he's like so you are having an affair and she's like no I wrote them (laughs) um and like in a way like I think that's really it's kind of like a little hint to the yeah like the subverse like the way that like women all over the film are like subverting romance yeah um because like she finds like the best sexual partner is actually kind of herself yeah, exactly. It's like she clearly is like dissatisfied in her, in her marriage and she's looking for something else. But then his impulse is to just like lower her head down. Whereas yeah. when he when he's in the encounters with Ruth, she's the one who lowers his head. <laughs> you yeah. know, like he's the one who's being instructed on what to do and in performing like kind of lingus. Um, I feel so like clinical when I say that. I love saying cunnilingus. <laughs> and Jane Campion has got a thing about cunnilingus. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I, cause I just feel like all of her films feature it. Um, and yeah. why not? You know, haven't, haven't, why we, not? haven't we all got a thing about cunnilingus? Yeah, Jane Campion is a cunning linguist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's the good kind of immature joke. A really, a really clever one. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like sorry, you've actually made this film better for me now because I was I was really struggling because um, I was only trying to figure out the ma- the man's role in the story. Mm-hmm. But actually, you're right. I think it's much more subversive than that. Yeah, I really think it is, and maybe it's like a little it's a little obvious, but I don't know. I think it I wouldn't it wouldn't have occurred to me if I hadn't been thinking that. Yeah, for it, but I've definitely I've been thinking that for a while. That's a great analysis yeah. because actually in that it is actually a really fitting, um, you know, aspect of the end of this series. I like that it can, the deprogramming could really be read that way, you know? Yeah. And I think that it's, again, like it's one of those things, like the only way we can ever leave, you know, the cult of like love or femininity or whatever it is, you know, mm. is that sort of controls our hopefully just early life. Yes. Like, I mean, you do just leave it on your own. Like, there's no one else can take that can take it out, take you out of it. You yeah. Know? Um. So it's like that. You know what happens? It, it you know it does sort of match up to what deprogramming is, which is really just like a part of your journey. It's only yeah. it's only really you that can decide. I mean, not that I'm not saying that we should all live in female communes. Um. <laughs> but I think I think ideas about love do us a lot of damage. Um, yeah agreed you kind of almost need a detox from that hence those communes and hence the necessity to completely break away like physically mentally yeah absolutely obviously people can be like in happy marriages and happy relationships 
with, you know, men or women or, you know, whoever. Um, Yeah. But like, I think it's not the, it's not necessarily, I don't think it's men that do us damage. I think it's that, it's that idea. It's the the way that we're talking about yeah it's the idea that casts men in those roles as well which yeah. you know they don't want to be necessarily in those roles either so um it's doing harm to everyone really mm-hmm. um yeah that's so true let's move on to charlie says okay charlie says um based on true events the three women involved in the infamous manson murders susan atkins patricia krenwinkle and leslie van hooten are in solitary confinement away from the general population at the California Institution for Women. As one of the prison teachers, Carleen Fath attempts to shake them of their beliefs in the teachings of Charles Manson, flashbacks tell the story of how they got there. Perfect. Mm. Amazing. Um, So this was a first time watch for me as well. and I have to say, I learned a lot about the Manson family watching this movie because I, I'm not that au fait with historically everything that went on. Oh, that must uh, be nice. I know too much. <laughs> I know too much about the Manson family. So this was almost, even though I really enjoyed it, um, yeah. the actual, the like I really enjoyed the, the bits in the prison because I didn't actually know about that. But um, all of the flashbacks to the Manson, I was like, oh, my God, I've heard this so many times, <laughs> so many times. Um, and I also couldn't help but compare it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, um, of course. And like the different the sort of the different like the different ways that the different actors did it. Um, so, yeah, it was um, it would have been nice to watch it knowing a little less about the Manson family. <laughs> Well, now you know how I feel whenever there's a new Batman movie and I have to sit through Batman's origin story again. Oh like, it's like, yeah, I know. I know. I know what happened to his parents. Like, do we have to go through this again? <laughs> oh, dear. Batman. But can I say, like, I just, I'm just very curious. Would you say that this film is factually quite accurate in terms of, like, representing the past and when they were kind of recollecting what happened? I think so. I mean, I think it's taken yeah. some liberties. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't like, I don't know. I've thought something really interesting was that this film portrayed the men in the Manson family, the men that weren't Charlie, mm. um, much more sympathetically than I've ever seen them portrayed before. Mm. Like, I think usually when people talk about them, they're thought of as like, like enablers, like, or not enablers, but like um, enforcers kind of oh yeah yeah. you know Mm. like being men like in Mm. this group of women um but it seems you know like this is the first film that I've seen like people like Tex Watson kind of be portrayed as like victims of like bullying you know like the same kind of you know the same having the same vulnerability so the bit where he like brings him up like teaches him how like oh my god this is the cunnilingus episode <laughs> oh yeah oh my god <laughs> but there's a bit where he says like oh you know like text like text is bad at giving head and then like and then um then he like leaves and comes back and like i don't know so i've never i don't know totally how I mean, I yes, you know, like boys are vulnerable too. Like I'm sure that yeah. they were all really vulnerable. But I got the idea that the men had more freedom than the women. Mm. Um, mm. This film kind of implies that the men were just as like vulnerable in a lot of ways, which is mm. an interesting take. And I don't necessarily think it's not true. I just hadn't. I've never seen anyone do that before. 
Um, I mean, I guess like also the bit that I'm really wondering about in terms of uh, historical accuracy is did someone really um, sever an umbilical cord with their teeth? Oh, because I was, I was fucking disgusting. Yeah, you know, that is the bit that I fact checked as well. Like I was like, did Charlie Manson birth a baby? Like, <laughs> I don't know what the technical term for midwifery is, but like, or the technical verb, but... No. I didn't believe that actually. No. I'm not sure if that's true. Like, and it's true that someone had their baby in the cult. Yeah, it is true, but yeah, I don't. I, I, I like know what they're trying to do by getting him like all in there and getting yeah. and going there. But I, I, I like to. I hope that he didn't like go in there and make like an incision with a uh. knife and like that. I made me. It made me feel faint that scene. Me too. That truly like triggered my pregnancy phobia like that was just like oh my god this is horrific it was disgusting and the umbilical with the teeth it's like it's like i i know i think that was a liberty because like it didn't even make it didn't even make sense like it's like if he has a knife that he just used to slice her vagina like why don't you use that to cut the umbilical cord because no one wants a mouth full of like um full of like placenta yeah it's disgusting oh my god and that that whole scene, um, I had to pause the movie just to kind of compose myself, it regroup. It was so but, interesting. But then I ended up like Googling, I ended up searching on YouTube, like how do babies breathe in utero? Because I was like, wait a minute, like how, <laughs> it's full of amniotic f- fluid. Like what's going on? What about their lungs? And anyway, that, that was a weird <laughs> like a rabbit hole to go down. Well, it's for the same reason they can breathe underwater. We can breathe underwater? Yeah, haven't you seen no. that? You know, seen the Nirvana cover? <laughs> the Nirvana album cover with the baby underwater. They can breathe underwater. No, Sarah, they can't. Yeah, they can. Oh, they can't breathe, but they don't need to, like, they can swim underwater. Oh my God, you're, are you having me on? No, I'm not. <laughs> For the first few, like, months, they can just, like, swim underwater. Oh my god, so that's why I've been seeing all those clips on Twitter with people just throwing babies in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Um, hang on, I'm gonna look it up right now so that I'm not um I'm not so that I'm not like spreading fake news. Okay, so oh okay, they can't breathe underwater. It says infants up to six months old whose heads are submerged in water will naturally hold their breath. At the same time, their ah. heart rate's slow helping them to conserve oxygen and blood circulates primarily between their most vital organs, the heart and the brain. Okay. Okay. That they makes sense. They can't actually breathe underwater, but they don't die. <laughs> they throw them in the water. Um, <laughs> like at least not immediately. It's so freaky. I, swear. I know it's really freaky, but they're quite, yeah, they're quite clever. Like they got like life skills that grownups don't have. I was just going to say, I saw this hilarious video of um, a baptism and the priest was really like over-enthusiastic with dunking the baby's head in the water. That's he, really he was practically like trying to drown the baby. I was like, uh, is this okay? Like, is this all right? Is it, you know, I was really worried about the baby. I guess if it's under six months, it'll be fine. No problem. Oh no problem for the baby. Oh my God. It's so weird. Yeah, it is really scary, but um, it's scary. But yeah, I think I don't think that can be true. Um, but I, it, I mean, but I also am not. I'm actually not sure Mary's baby was born at Spawn Ranch. Okay. Um, like she definitely had a baby in the cold. 
But she had a baby in the car. I'm yeah. not sure they were even living there. I think they might have been living in the house. Right, um, right. I admit, I'm not. I'm not like totally sure. However, like I don't want to. I don't want to like second guess uh, Mary Harron and Gunnar Turner's research. Like maybe they know something I don't. Um, but I mean, I just, I just like the fact that um, I guess a lot of those things were shown in the movie because it sort of it gave you a sense of how long they were there. Yeah, and and just the amount of time that they were isolated from the rest of the world, from their families. Like, I I really didn't know that much. So I was watching it thinking, oh my God, like, I thought this only happened over a summer, you know? Like, I really did not have any facts going into it. Yeah. Um, but wow, it was a huge stretch of time. Yeah, I guess it was. And, yeah. um, and I also liked when, because he had some connections with people in the music business. Mm-hmm. And when there was, is it the guy from the Beach Boys or yeah, something Dennis or some Morgan. connection? Yeah. He wanted to impress these music bigwigs. Was so cringe. I like, think that just... really did happen. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was cringy enough that he was getting them to dance. But then when they all start taking their clothes off, it was just like horrifying. It was. I, thought, I felt like he was going to get out like, a, you know, like in um, all of those like reality TV shows where they like hit a buzzer and like get them to stop. <laughs> Like, that's kind of what I thought. I was just like, no, make it, hit the buzzer and tell them it's over. The X Factor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. It was so cringe. But just the fact that when um, – I really like the way they set it up because it kind of – it did kind of remind me a bit of Patrick Bateman because um, – an American psycho because there was this kind of – egotistical attachment to music mm-hmm. like music for the sake of power tripping you know yeah, that's so true that's why I don't like music and like, because I think <laughs> too many people use it that way yeah it does get really misused like there's a lot of snobbery yeah there is especially sorry but among men and like, yeah I've never too I understand why men like need it more than women because like you know traditionally they're not as like they haven't got as much access to like expressions of emotion yeah, it's really important to them. But like my whole life, music's just been men explaining things to me, and <laughs> okay. I'm just like not having it anymore. So now, like, if someone's like, "What do you? What music do you like?" I'm like, "I don't like music," because <laughs> <laughs> I'm opting out of that whole thing. You reject their hypothesis. I reject it. Rose, I think Rosemary Cronin told me that the artist Rosemary Cronin yes. told me that friend when, of the pod. of the pod told me that she, when people say what kind of music do you like, she says soundtracks, and I think Ooh. that's just like a super like anti-patriarchal answer. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's very, she's reclaiming the plow, the power there exactly. for sure. Anti, very anti-snobbery to say soundtracks. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. That's a great response. Yeah. Yeah, just because it's, it, it, I just found it so funny when he was sort of like, um, his, his like underlings or whatever thought that he performed such a wonderful piece. <laughs> and then, and then he walks off and we don't actually hear the conversation and he's clearly being let down. He's clearly being told like, yeah, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But then to save face, he kind of slowly walks back and, his real in- interest is to keeping is to make sure that they they remain fully impressed by him. He doesn't. It's like we know that he doesn't fully care about music. He just is using it oh, but he to control does them. Because he like he tries to get them to go and kill Terry Melcher. Of course. So yeah. like it's a real blow oh, to the ego. Right. Like the only that reason the only reason they killed Sharon Tate and the others in the house 
Um, was because of the, yeah. Because Tara Welch didn't live there anymore and he didn't have any way to get to him. Oh my God, you know what? How did I miss that? Mm. I'm um, sorry, it's just because, like, it's just because I know too much about it. Um, the, no, I you're could, right, I you're right. Could, um, uh, you must remember this. You must remember this as a really good series called Charles Manson's Hollywood. Ah, uh, okay. Um, which is, like, about, is really in-depth on, like, Hollywood's influence on Manson and Manson's influence yeah. on Hollywood and all of the ways that they kind of merged. Wow. Um, so, like, I know, like, too much stuff. Like, when I was watching the Terry Melcher bit, when, you know, the yeah. girls are, like, taking their clothes off, I was just like, well, of course he's not attracted to these girls because he's going out with Candice Bergen. <laughs> like, I was, oh, wow. I was just like, so I'm too, I just know too much about it. You have the inside track. I want to watch this movie with your commentary on it. Well, like, yeah. seriously. Well, I because... mean, there's probably, I think a movie with Karina Longworth's commentary would have been would be great i'm basically just parroting everything that she's saying oh but i, I prefer the way you say oh, okay. it <laughs> honestly like I, I it's true i hadn't even made the connection in my mind it was just like he just wanted to remain like you know their king or whatever but no you're right he it's true of course he it, it really was a blow to his ego yeah yeah he really wanted to be a rock star really a lot I guess I just couldn't imagine it because he just he he just looked so. I mean, it just didn't work. <laughs> like he was so delusional. Yeah, completely, completely. Delusional. Oh my god. But yeah. I mean, okay, so just just on the point of like um, the way that these people who had been clearly brainwashed for years mm-hmm. or or however many you know months or however long they were there. Um, it is, it, it's always nice in a movie when you have like an, a newcomer to the situation and that's how the film starts so that you can kind of like take the journey with them and you're kind of inducted into that experience along with them. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that is how this film works, but it's kind of, it's, I love how Mary Heron shows the process of her kind of fully surrendering to the Manson family and then she's initially coming from a place of skepticism because she dares to like challenge Charlie at one point in terms of like him wearing like um, leather or what was it? Deer skin. Deer skin. That's it. Exactly. And it it was such an awkward moment because she was completely right. He was a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. And I guess her taking that journey from fully submitting and then being in jail and having these, interactions with someone I guess deprogramming them yeah it was a really Um, interesting premise I've never and I've never heard about you know uh Carleen Fath's story before yeah um and I think it seems like she was closer to one of to Leslie Van Houten than the others so that's why it's like so much her story Lulu yeah um so yeah I don't know I didn't know about this at all like I don't you don't even think about them in prison really you don't think that it's like it's actually kind of cruel like we don't think about these people having the rest of their lives I know to live and that they were so young they were just like practically kids really when yeah. they were in prison when they did these things yeah um, and so hated poor things yeah absolutely like really despised mm. and and I just I also like the fact that I mean maybe this is a little bit like inter media commentary but because um, the woman who plays Carlene, wasn't she the 
the investigator in Unbelievable. Yeah, she is. She's such a good actress. I love her. She's amazing. But I feel like she's kind of, those two roles are very similar in a way, you yeah, know? She's very much like someone that kind of, yeah, like makes a specialty of like of really feminist roles. Yeah. Um, and I do find like what the, the idea that they like sent someone in to give the Manson girls women, like women's studies teaching. Yeah. I mean, I hope that really happened. It seems almost unbelievable, like considering the difference in like the, because like, I don't know, I just feel like the Manson family is not possible now because of change. Like, I think, I mean, I, I mean, I'm saying this from like, you know, a very kind of London centric privileged position, but I feel like, yeah, I just think what makes what made Manson so possible was that the world was so so misogynistic in the sixties. Yes, like so yes. deeply misogynistic. Because the thing that I just found so you know so disgusting in the film is just all of those guys hanging around, just thinking that it's that Charlie's so cool because he's got this like harem of girls. Yeah, you know, like it's just, and it's like people, like you know, people like Dennis Wilson, like you know, the 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 Hell's Angels, like all of the people that just were like, this guy rules because these girls will just like sleep with anyone like on command. That's really that's just like the most troubling part of it for me. You wow. know, the idea of these women just and like that you know they weren't allowed to ha- like he was like I, you know they weren't allowed to have their own money like obviously just like stuff that was controlling, but it was all kind of rooted in misogyny. Yeah. So, like, the idea that, like, the world can be like that and then in prison you have this, like, almost utopia of women teaching you feminism. Yeah. It's, like, it's almost unbelievable. I think it's, like, it's the most bonkers true story I've ever heard. Oh, my God. The world can be like that outside and that there are... St- but I suppose it was the case because, like, if you were, like, at university or you were, like, an academic or you were a teacher, like, you had access to feminist teaching and you must your life must have been so different from the average person in yeah. the 60s so like it's kind of this amazing time that it must have really saved a lot of women's lives like having yeah. those books come out and those like those women like just pioneering yeah like second wave feminism must have been life changing i can see like the the kind of irony that in a way in a twisted kind of way of a tragic way um these these three women or at least their stories being portrayed um they finally had this little enclave where they were able to be um exposed to these ideas that completely flew in the face of their indoctrination yeah isn't it strange like even before you get to that that part with the Manson girls, like when they're in this kind of poetry workshop with all of the female prisoners oh, and yeah. they're like reading their writing and it's just like, it's amazing. Just like, what yeah. is this place? This like, um, I, be- I guess I'm sure prisons aren't like that today. Whatever was going on there, like that should just be uh, rudimentary teaching like in all schools. Like, I mean, I know it probably is now as an elective but I just don't see why it's not like a fundamental teaching yeah same it's really strange and like the only I don't know it just seems so unjust that like only when you like hit rock bottom can you have access to that education I know um I guess better late than never but still it's um it's really yeah you're right you're right 
but maybe it's actually, maybe yeah. that is like the thing about deprogramming that it's only really when people have like no choice but to stop something yeah they're like that they're receptive to it to like learning something different well maybe that does yeah like like you just said maybe it goes back to um the idea of the analysis comes to an end when you finally got the things that you needed to like work through yeah and pro- process all of those things it can't happen a minute before because you're you're, you're just not gonna be you're, you're literally not gonna have the cognitive capacity to challenge yourself um I guess when you challenge yourself, you're ready to kind of move to the next phase, hence why you can terminate analysis. And I guess when you're still kind of battling those demons and constantly like, you know, walking around in circles constantly, like infuriatingly, um, you're you're still caught up in it. You can't, you know, those those women were not going to leave... um, is it was it the ranch? Is that how they described their where they were? Yeah. With, yeah, they weren't gonna leave. Like it was that's why it's also kind of amazing that Mary Heron put that scene, like that kind of almost like fantasy ending of one of the girls kind of it was it Lulu? Yeah. Where she kind of was thinking back to the moment where people came for her and they said, You can come with us, you know, we'll take you away from here. And oh, just it must have been so painful to think I could have just got on that motorbike you know yeah I wonder if that's true I wonder wow, if that really yeah happened. I mean it's possible it did like you know this, yeah. this woman whose book this is based on spent time you know spent a lot of time with Leslie Van Houten so um wow so maybe it's maybe that really happened I mean what's incredible to me is just the kind of power dynamics there because Charles Manson was sitting right there he could have physically stopped her but he didn't need to yeah. like he put up he, he threw his hands up in the air like he knew that the power of his mind control was so strong that she wouldn't dare go mm-hmm. that's what really scares me you know did you ever hear about this experiment where um i think they were like experimental psychologists they they, they took this uh glass and they put in like I, I don't know like how many fruit flies there must have been like 50 fruit flies at once inside the glass and then they put a lid over it and then i think they spent like a few hours there just like that mm-hmm. and then time passed and then the the experimenter removed the lid but the flies didn't fly away. They just stayed there. Ooh, that's creepy. Isn't it? That's really sad. Yeah, like they knew that they could leave and they like they clearly was no more obstacle, but they just stayed. I, I know I'm going to like bring up exterminating angel another t- once again on this podcast. Like I feel like I always talk about it, but that 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 would be a good companion piece for this episode, I feel. Oh yeah, that's so. That's actually true. Oh god, whenever we always um, <laughs> like, I always think of like a better films that we could have done when we finished a series. <laughs> like there are so many. No, no, I'm I, regretting. I'm, I'm regretting not doing. Um, but we'll no, no, this, this one, this one has to be saved for another series because it is so. I feel like it's not enough to just um, classify it under cult. It's just mm. it's so sublime. Like it could literally fit anywhere. Yeah, that's true. Um, We'll find that we'll find the reason to to have it on, like as a kind of you know front and center <laughs> um, analysis. But um, 
but yeah, like I just, I guess, I guess it, that's why it did take as long as it did for the social worker to try and get through to these women because some of the excuses they were coming out with, you know, mm-hmm. and just like the things that they were saying and like making, like justifying Manson's behavior and like, I don't know, it just really made me angry. I know that sounds so naive, but it's it's, it's weird to like hear people say things like that. Um, I know, but I don't think it's like any more ridiculous than a lot of the things that we tell ourselves. I know. Like in a way, because I think it's only because I think, what was I saying the other day? I, I can't remember. I said something to someone and then I was like, as I'm saying this out loud, I understand that it's ridiculous. And I can't remember what it was, <laughs> but it was like a thought that I really had. And I had like, I really accepted. And then as I said it out loud, I was like, oh no, I'm oh that's really stupid but I I found that scene very like quite amusing where she's like you know you seem like really you seem like clever girls who have been educated so you have to know that elves and fairies are are mythical creatures and that it's impossible for a human to turn into one like and she had to like spell that out and like all of their faces the way that all of their faces kind of fall but sometimes things have to just be dragged into the light even like really yeah. obvious things that have to be said out loud yeah. for you to really understand them. And I think maybe that's like what therapy is. Um, yeah. The, th- the yeah. things that you can say and like they seem the most obvious thing once they've been said out loud, but that you've been kind of carrying around for a very long time. Wow. Um, yeah. That's the key to try and truly uh, find freedom from a lot of those things that keep us in a, in a, in a jail of our own mind mm. as the sessions were progressing with those girls in the prison there was one who um was it katie mm. she she was the one that was resisting the most that you could also see that she was really struggling um it, i don't know it just it really moved me that those kind of scenes in, inside the prison i wasn't i, I wasn't expecting that because i thought i was going to find that just like very matter of fact. I didn't think it was, I I didn't think I would relate to it emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think they are really relatable, those women. Um, Yeah. Because they're sort of like the worst of what can happen to any of us. Yeah. Um, You know, the conversation in the cabin in uh, Holy Smoke is, like you said, it's just like so insubstantial. Um, because it's not really a conversation it's like some kind of like game of one-upmanship yeah um but the like the the sort of alternative I think like I think discourse is like really important in cults you know like Charlie's really controlling over like what they can say and the questions they can ask and what their names are and all of that kind of stuff yeah and so this is the first time they're really like they're even allowed to kind of like say what they're thinking out loud I guess that's the that's the successful deprogramming it's not that it's not anything that's been you know like in the prime of miss jean brody i know, uh-huh. this, is, I know this is a term but stay with me she uh-huh. says um like education from the root prefix something meaning a meaning to lead to lead out like and she's mm. explaining to this like headmistress in this like scottish girls school that education is not putting in it's to to draw out what's already there and it's this kind of like you know she's sort of like a jokey character but it's actually a really Mm -hmm. sensible thing to say 
Um, yeah. And that's the, I think maybe that's like, that's what therapy is. And that's also what deprogramming oh. really should be. You can't, it's not going in there and like installing a new set of beliefs. It's going yeah. in there and like drawing out whatever it is that you already know. You yeah. know, cult, like cult members are not people that are stupid. Like yeah. they're just people that are not like, that are like, they're just people that have something blocking the truth like you know from their minds yeah so like this is so she's like a real educator Colleen wow she doesn't she doesn't like she gives them these books and she gives them but like the books are just kind of tools to express like what she thinks might have happened to them she's yes. not like she's not really like forcing it down their throat she's not really teaching them feminism she even says like I teach women's studies but we don't have to study that yeah um, but she really all she's doing is like asking them questions and they're gradually figuring it out themselves that's true that's yeah. true she's not she she is the ideal deprogrammer in the sense that she doesn't go in to just simply replace in a very formulaic way their old beliefs for a set of new ones because that, yeah. that's never that's just a substitution that's not what that's not what finding freedom from ideology should be about Mm -hmm. it should you're right you're absolutely right she she really does the hard work of um she kind of resists the temptation of filling their heads with anything it's more that she gives them access to ideas and leaves them to practice self self-criticism which is the hard work that they've been deprived of in the cult yeah that's the thing. Like they've only been instructed to just follow Manson's word to the letter. Um, they've been completely like deprived of flexing those intellectual muscles. Mm-hmm. And and so they're very weak in that sense. They're not stupid. They're just being deliberately weakened in that way. Yeah. You're God. I never really thought about it that way, but you're right. Like, because I guess I would be the worst deprogrammer because I would just go in there and get, go like, ladies, what were you thinking? You know? Shake them so their heads like knock back and forth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, how could you listen to this dickhead? You know, like this kind of thing. But actually, like, it's not that's not going to work. Like, it's it's only going to f- push them further into their own idea, into that old ideology. So the only, the, you know, the only functional way has to be um, creating this climate of acceptance and feel letting people know that, you know, you're not really even judging them. You're just mm-hmm. there and you're kind of like walking the walk with them and you're presenting new ideas and giving them the opportunity to pick up self-criticism. It has to be them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That is so true. That is. And I, and I guess that's when, you know, analysis is also successful and you can, choose to terminate it you could walk away because you've learned those skills and you can start to like implement them on your own yeah basically like that's what a successful therapist is supposed to do yeah yeah as opposed to because this was my experience of therapy as you know it was not a very it was a very traumatic one Mm. where without going into detail I did feel like it was very cultish like the therapist I had was um not at all in interested in what I was um, producing in in the sessions um, that had any sign of me finding the strength of doing it on my own. Yeah. He, he would often create situations where he would have to like dominate 
the, the terms narratively. And I, I just protested too many times and I had to walk away. It just wasn't going to work. And I truly felt like when I walked away from that, I truly felt like I'd been deprogrammed. Um, honestly, like I know that it's just, it was just me and another person. It wasn't a group of people, but I just mm-hmm. felt really liberated and released. Sorry, I didn't mean well, to make I this think- really personal or anything. <laughs> actually nice on the last episode well I hope that you're feeling liberated and released um from this series because it's the end yeah (laughs) it's the end we've come to the end end. um well done us very proud of us can't believe it's series five next up series six whatever it may be yeah we will be coming to you to get feedback we hope that you let us know what you'd like to hear in then in our sixth series I'm so excited so excited so hopefully this episode will be going out on new year's eve Mm -hmm. 2020 um (laughs) and we look forward to seeing you in the new year follow us everywhere and be sure to if you've been enjoying our content don't forget to consider maybe donating to us it really helps us in putting in the time and researching material for you oh actually we've had a donation recently Oh, that's exciting. Um, Yes, we've had a couple. I actually haven't put them up on the Instagram because I've been trying to take a social media break. Um, Ian DeLeon, I don't actually know how to say this, DeLeon or DeLeon? Um, DeLeon. DeLeon um, uh, sent us like a Christmas present donation, which is very nice. Um, He said, Discovering Discovering Productions is probably the greatest thing about this truly strange year. Thank you so much, Sarah and Mary, for all the work that you do in helping us get through the lockdowns with such with with such smart, stimulating content. All the best from the states, Ian. Which is really nice. Oh, cheers, Ian! Thank you so much. Very kind. And then we actually have from Carl Murta. Murta. Uh huh. Um, we have a our first monthly donation. Oh um, wow! This is the first time that someone has uh, donated. Um, on a regular basis which is really really nice so thank you so that much. that is so sweet thank you so much we are so grateful it was a nice christmas present and a nice way to go into 2021 thank you very much oh that's so exciting very heartwarming thank you so much um i'm going to put, <laughs> I'm going to put both of these on instagram um at some point soon when i go back on there i'm just like really trying to stay away from social media at the moment <laughs> because i'm a bit exhausted um, yeah it's nice to have a detox yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I've, I've really enjoyed this series with you, Sarah. Thank you so much for talking through these movies with me. Thank you so much as well. As always, I get all of my best ideas when I talk to you. So, likewise, you. likewise. <laughs> um, so we will t- we'll take a little break and then we'll be back with a new series whenever we're ready. Okay, don't pressure us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should be able. We, hopefully, we'll be back in February. But we we've both decided that we need like a month to just kind of um, reassess, come up with new topics, and kind of recharge and come back to you fresh. Exactly. You need to fill the well before you can empty it again. Um, Absolutely. Otherwise, you're not going to have any good ideas. So, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think you will because you're brilliant at analyzing films. No way. <laughs> <laughs> Applies to you mostly. <laughs> um, but no, definitely. Um, thanks for sticking with us. And we look forward to interacting with you in the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.